The scripture reading is Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 13 and 22 and 23. If you're reading from the blue Bibles in your seats, this is found on page 605. Isaiah 45, beginning at verse 1. Let us hear God's word for us this morning. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is the word of God. Amen. Well, join me as, uh, as we go before the Lord to pray once again before we study his word together. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together this morning would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Pray that you would reveal your son Jesus to us and that we would hear from him this morning, that we might know and love him more. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Many of you know that my wife and I are not originally from Texas. We're not native Texans, and I apologize for that. Uh, We are Midwesterners um, and uh, spent... uh, our childhood there, and then also, of course, we were in Indiana for a time, 
as well. And uh, for those of you who have lived your entire lives in Texas, uh, you might not be familiar with the both wonderful and awful feature of homes in the Midwest. I'm talking about the basement, okay? Um, It's a wonderful thing to have a basement and that your kids can play and it ends up being a great place for storage. Um, We had a basement in our house in Indiana and we loved it for the most part, um, but then figured out about a year in that it was going to be the bane of my existence, and that was because it flooded regularly. And of course, we didn't know this when we bought it because the previous owner didn't disclose it, so that was a nice curveball for us as first-time homeowners. And so uh, it comes to the time when we are going to move back here, and so we put our house on the market, and I'm thinking, this thing's never going to sell, because we have to disclose this. Nobody's going to want to buy this house. And so this is in the spring. We had actually had a really, we had had a drought the summer before, and so it hadn't been as bad through the winter. We'd had a couple instances with some water. So things were actually looking pretty good, and uh, it ended up being dry enough to where we got, a, uh, we got a contract on our house within a week of putting it on. We were so excited about it. Of course, I'm torn up with anxiety this whole time. And the date for the inspection is set. And two days before the inspection is to take place, we look at the forecast, and there's a 100% chance of rain for both of these days, guaranteed to rain. And so uh, these two days leading up to this, uh, there is all this rain. We get multiple inches of rain. The Wabash River, which is this river that runs right through West Lafayette and Lafayette, is flooding. Um, And so incredibly at this point, our basement remained dry. And so the night before our inspection that was to take place at 8 a.m. the next morning, I went to bed about midnight and I go down and check. It's completely dry. And so, cue the hallelujah chorus, doxology, everything at this point. (laughs) But then I get up at 6 in the morning to go down and check again. And sure enough, there are the trickles coming in from all the walls where this regularly happens. And it continues to pick up, and panic, of course, sets in. And so we call our realtor and say, I I don't know what we're going to do. Our house, this thing's flooding again. And while we had disclosed it, I'm thinking, when they see this in person, this deal is done for. There's no way they're going to buy this place. And so in that moment, as you might imagine, I realized I had absolutely no control over what was going to happen with the sale of this house. And, of course, it felt terrible and, and I'm thinking, this is going to be the end of us financially. Like, we are never going to sell this place. This is the money pit. And so I have this deep sense of discomfort, anxiety, and fear because I had no control over what was next for us. And I know maybe you have some house stories. Um, if so, you can keep them to yourselves because it still brings up anxiety in me to talk about it. Um, But you know what it is to be painfully reminded that you don't have the control over over your life that you wish you did or think that you sometimes do. It could be in that moment where, as a parent, you realize that this little child, this human being that is in your home, uh, is one over whom you don't have the kind of control that you wish you did or thought maybe you did at some point. Whether that is the public meltdown in the aisle at at Target or the phone call in the middle of the day from the principal's office, or, maybe even worse, the phone call in the middle of the night from the police 
and you start realizing you don't have the control that you wish you did. It could be with what's going on right now in our city, as Jerry just prayed for, in our city, in our country, and even in the world in facing this disease. Um, as Westerners, as Americans living in the 21st century, we are not used to feeling uh, out of control when facing some kind of disease. That's not something that we're used to facing at all. And it is really unsettling to think we don't really even know what's going on and how widespread this disease could be. And it's really unsettling to think about it. The question I want you to consider this morning is how do you respond when you feel that sense of lack of control? Are you one who, who retreats out of fear and kind of closes your eyes, plugs your ears, and just hopes that this thing is going to pass, whatever it is? Maybe you're one that lashes out in anger and, and grasps for control at whatever cost, and so the people in your home, your roommates, the people around you suffer because of it, because you are trying to bend everybody to your will. Maybe you're one who wants to escape at all costs and get away from it, and so you turn to alcohol, you turn to pornography, you turn to overwork, you turn to maybe binging on a whole season of something on Netflix just to try and check out from whatever it is that you're trying to hide from in order to have some semblance of control in your life. What's happening in this passage and in this whole section of Isaiah is that Israel is completely out of control. They're in exile right now. They're in Babylon, which is away from the temple, away from the land, which for them meant away from the special presence of God. So they are powerless, they've been conquered, and they're in captivity. This is a place where they realize they have no control. They've got no say as to what their future is going to look like in this place. And so this section of Isaiah is God's word to them in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their feelings of helplessness and a lack of control. And it's for that reason that we can take a look at this this morning and see how that applies to our own sense of helplessness. Our feelings of being out of control and recognizing that we don't have control over our circumstances. But here's what God does in this passage. He comforts Israel. But He also challenges Israel to recognize that He alone is God. That He alone is sovereign. And that He alone can be trusted for that reason. So here's what I want us to see. As God's people, we can and we should rest in His sovereign care. And so here's how I want to frame our time this morning as we look at this passage. I want to ask and answer this question. Why can we rest in His sovereign care? Why can and should we rest in His sovereign care? Two reasons, not three. First, you can rest in God's sovereign care because He uses His sovereignty for your salvation. And we see this in verses uh, 1 through 7. I want to first look at what the shape of God's sovereignty takes in this passage. What it looks like for God to exercise His sovereignty in this situation. But before we do that, I want to remind you of where we are in this series. We're looking at Isaiah 40 to 55. And this is a section of Scripture where Israel is in exile... And so Isaiah is predicting them going to exile, and he is predicting God's deliverance of them from exile. 
But there's a huge, huge issue for Israel to deal with in the midst of this. Um, And it is that they are God's chosen people. They're the descendants of Abraham, and Abraham had received from God this huge promise that he is going to have, out of Abraham's line, is going to come this great nation, this great people. He's going to give them this land where they're going to dwell forever. And then through this people, the rest of the world is is going to come to know the God of Israel. So that's this promise that's been given. But there's obviously a huge problem because now they are in exile. They are in Babylon. And so the huge question that every Israelite is asking is, can God be trusted with this promise? Will he pull through on this? Because at this point, there is no foreseeable way forward for them. They are asking the question, is God even still in control? And that's not hard for us to feel that ourselves. I think one of my, and I would guess one of your deepest struggles in the Christian life is to actually believe that God is in control of the smallest things in your life. That is one of the most difficult questions for us to wrestle with. How can I believe that God is in control of my life when I continue without a job that can provide for my family and it feels like he kicks me when I'm down? I'm doing everything I can to find work and yet I still don't have a job. How can I believe that God is in control when I'm watching a friend and former pastor's marriage fall apart because of his own infidelity? How can I believe that God's in control of this world when his people in the Middle East are literally being killed every single day? How can I believe that God is in control when all of these things are happening? And so the circumstances might be different for us, but the question is the same as what Israel is asking. Is God in control? Is he going to pull through on his promise? And the answer that he gives to Israel in this passage comes in the form of this Persian emperor named Cyrus. And this is going to become a big deal because God calls Cyrus his shepherd and his anointed. If you've got your Bible open still, look back at the end of chapter 44. We didn't read this, but I want you to see this in the text. Chapter 44, verse 28. So this is what God says. Now the Lord says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. And then chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus. We're going to revisit that and why that's a big deal. But here's what God's going to do. He's saying, I am going to deliver my people Israel, and I am going to do it through this Persian emperor Cyrus. And the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to to subdue nations. I'm going to loose the belts of kings. I'm going to open doors, go before him, level the exalted places, break down these doors, and cut these prison bars. And what's happening is that, that God is speaking directly to Cyrus in this case, but it's really for Israel to listen in on and to hear. He's going to make it possible for Israel to be delivered out of this bondage in exile. And so if you're an Israelite who is hearing these words, hearing these promises coming to them, there's something that would inevitably come to your mind. It would be the Exodus. 
You would think of what had happened with your ancestors and how God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And so these are all these vivid images of being set free. And all of this is going to be done by the Lord, but he's going to do it through Cyrus. That's how he's going to do it. That's how he's going to exercise his sovereignty. But for what purpose? Why is he doing this? Look back to the second half of verse 3. He says this to Cyrus, I'm doing this, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. So he wants Cyrus to know that he is God. But it's not just Cyrus. Look at verse 4. He says, it's for the sake of my servant Jacob in Israel. I want my people to know that it is me, that I am the one who will get them out of captivity But it doesn't even stop there, just with with his servant Israel. Look at verse 6. He says that through Cyrus, God is going to show the entire world that he alone is Lord. And that's what this language of from the rising of the sun and from the west means. He's saying that all will know that I, the Lord, am God, and that there is no other when I do this work through Cyrus and I deliver my people. That's his promise and the purpose of his sovereign care. And so what is it that they're going to know about him? They are going to know that God alone can rescue them. He alone can bring this about. He alone is the Lord of heaven and earth, and nothing can stop him. And that's what he says in verse 7. He says, he's the one who forms light and creates darkness. He's the one who brings about well-being, and at the same time, he's the one who brings about calamity. The good things and the bad things, God is Lord over all of these things. And this is what God is going to do through Cyrus. That's the kind of power he's going to exercise through him. And so verse 8 paints this picture of salvation and righteousness bursting forth from the earth because God alone has brought it forth. They are going to be delivered. These people in captivity who are wondering how God's going to pull through on His promise. And so this is meant to come to them as good news of comfort. That's a repeated theme in this section of Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people. God will deliver you. And this is actually what ended up happening. This prophecy was fulfilled uh, later on, and this is how it's recorded in Ezra Chapter 1, verse 2, says this of Cyrus. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. This comes as comfort to God's people, knowing that their God is sovereign over all these circumstances. And that's what it's supposed to do for us as well, that, that, that this should come to us as a promise and an assurance of comfort. That God has at his, as at his disposal everything in all of creation. And here's what I want you to hear. If you are in Jesus, if you have trusted Christ, then everything in the entire world is working together for your good. Now, I know there are a lot of you here who have been Christians for a long time. Some of you maybe are newer Christians. But for those of you who have been Christians for a long time, this is one of those incredible truths that we can so easily grow indifferent towards. You hear it all the time. God is sovereign over all things so that it doesn't really make much of a difference for you anymore. 
It's like you're eating steak from Del Frisco's at lunch and dinner every single day, and you kind of go, yeah, it's just steak, you know. You grow indifferent to it. And if you don't grow indifferent to it, the other thing that we do with God's sovereignty is really make it a doctrine to debate rather than a promise to be believed. And so we don't let it come home to us and actually transform the way in which we would look out on our lives as a whole. The incredible truth is that if you trust in Jesus, everything is working together for your good. Your God is in utter control of all things happening. So that when we say that the question and answer of Heidelberg Catechism number one, we say, He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Every single thing is working together for your salvation. And what that means is that though you and I feel and actually are, we just don't always recognize it, completely helpless and without control, you belong to a God who is in control. Always. Without fail, always in control. So it may be that, that, that we treat this more as something to, to debate and to argue about, and there are some real good questions to ask, but I think there is something when we say God is sovereign over all things, the good things and the bad things, there is a personal discomfort that arises that's not something purely intellectual, but it's something very personal and experiential that's really hard, and it's this question. What if God uses extraordinarily painful circumstances in your life to bring about His good purposes? What then? What are we supposed to do then? What about these questions that we asked about earlier? Our joblessness, our cancer, our infertility, death, broken relationships, and my own sin. How does that work? Well, this is now the second answer that God provides for us to that question as to why we can rest in Him. You can rest in God's sovereign care because it's absurd and dangerous not to. Now, that's intentionally provocative. It's absurd not to. This is where Isaiah goes in verses 9 through 13. If you notice, the tone changes. Verses 1 through 7, and then 8 is kind of a transition verse. Verses 1 through 7 are coming to Cyrus, saying this to him. Now, verses 9 through 13 turn to Israel. And you can see that Israel is not totally on board with God's plan of rescue, right? Why not? Why are they so bent out of shape about this? Because they can't believe that God would use Cyrus to do this. Okay, what's the big deal about Cyrus? What's wrong with that? Here's the issue. Cyrus was a pagan Gentile emperor. He's not an Israelite. He doesn't know God. He's not a worshiper of God. And so, so Israel's thinking, wait, one second here. You're going to use who to do this? You, you, you're saying this guy is going to be the one who rescues us, your people? He doesn't worship you. He doesn't even know you. And, and what happens when he does deliver us out of slavery? Because the problem right now is that these Gentile pagans have us in captivity. Isn't he going to do the same thing when he gets us out? 
this can't be what you're actually talking about, God. I, I know that's not your plan. And it's scandalous to them. They are livid about it. It strikes at so much of what they believe to be true about their God and how they've, in some cases, misunderstood Him. And obviously, that's not hard for us to identify with either, is it? God, you're not actually going to teach me to find my worth and my value in you alone by not giving me this promotion, right? You're not going to do that. Or or you're not going to convince me that you alone are sufficient for me by taking away this romantic relationship that I have longed for for so, so long. You're not actually saying you're going to use this cancer in my life to force me to rest in you alone and find my security there. You're not actually saying that, are you? And what God says is, yes, I am going to do those things because I am so committed to you that I can and I will use even those hard things in your life for your good. Darwin quoted a pastor named Martin Bond a couple weeks ago. And Martin uses this phrase that God repurposes our suffering. God doesn't think those things are good at all. He hates death. He hates sickness. He hates seeing his people suffer. But here's what he says, though. He is saying that he will use his and our enemies to accomplish all of his good and redemptive purposes in your and my life. Even his enemies will be used for good in this world that he's making new. That's what he's saying to us. What we have are are two separate ways of questioning God. There's a healthy questioning of God and then a dangerous questioning of God. The, The healthy questioning of God is what we see over and over in the Psalms, where Israel is crying out to God and saying, but God, you promised. You promised to set us free. You promised that you'd be with us. Those are good, honest questions to ask of God, and God does not at all despise those questions. He invites those kinds of questions. But there's another kind of questioning, and it's the dangerous type, and that's what Israel's doing in this passage. And the issue is that these questions really aren't questions as much as they are accusations of God. I hear how you're going to fulfill this promise, but I don't like it. I think it's actually a really bad idea. I don't think you're really on your, on your A game with this. So how does God respond to that sort of pride and that perspective of us thinking we know better than God? He responds with this very serious warning in verse 9. He says, Woe to you! Woe to you who would question God! And he goes on to say, uh, you're actually speaking out of turn right now. You don't know what you're saying. And he gives these two images uh, of this potter and of this parent. And this is one of those places in the prophets where you you realize how great the prophets really are. Because they give these incredibly vivid images. So I want you to think for a second about how ridiculous these images are. Verse 9, there's a piece of clay that's talking back to the potter. Okay? Uh, kids, has your Play-Doh ever talked back to you? 
And if it has, you should tell your parents immediately about that. <laughs> that that's ridiculous, right? It's absurd. Verse 10, a child being born, talking back to his parent, like, is this, you, you're, this is how you beget me? This is how you give birth to me? It's ridiculous, right? When I was about seven or eight, I got into an argument with my parents, was not happy at all with something they had said. I don't remember what it was. And so, uh, in retaliation back at them, I went upstairs to my room where I had a chalkboard. I took a piece of chalk and wrote, Mom is dumb. Dad is dumb. Jonathan is dumb. And I spelled dumb D-U-M. There's something not right about that, right? Responding in this foolishness and ignorance. God goes on to say, yeah, in verse 11, ask me of these things, right? It's dripping with irony in verse 11. I made heaven and earth. I'm the creator. I'm in control over all these things. Who are you to criticize the way that I bring about my good purposes in this world? It's absurd and it's dangerous. And so if you're here this morning and you feel as though you have had enough of what feels like God kicking you while you are down and the temptation is so real for you to throw in the towel and walk away from Him, I want you to hear this warning. Know that that is not the path of life and that that is not an easier path to walk. This warning is real. Woe to you. But the passage doesn't end there, though. Look back at verse 13, and then we'll look at verse 22. God gives us here a restatement of His good intentions for His people. Verse 13, I've stirred him up, that is Cyrus, I've stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And then verse 22, turn to me. And be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. This comes as a call to trust in this God. And do you know why you can do that? Do you know why that you can trust Him even when things in your life feel unbelievably out of control and you are uncomfortable in significant ways with what's happening. You can do this. You can trust Him because through Cyrus, God did set His exiles free. And what that did is it preserved God's people and ultimately it preserved the line of Jesus Himself. Jesus was born as an Israelite. And what God did in Jesus is show forth and accomplish another rescue in the most unlikely of circumstances. God used His ultimate enemy, death itself, as a means by which He would accomplish the full rescue and deliverance of His people. Do you know where you can look, where you think that God is not one you can trust? Look to the cross. It's the cross that allows you to trust God even when you can't see a way forward. To trust Him when things look really, really bad. To trust Him when you wish things were different than they were. 
You can trust him in the midst of those things. Jesus himself has rescued you from sin and death by becoming sin and enduring death for you. That is the ultimate picture of God taking what is his enemy and using it for the good of his people because Jesus went into death and he came out the other side as the conqueror. Jesus alone is God. And as a result... Paul can say this in Romans 8, and this is true of you this morning if you've put your faith in Jesus. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, not disease, not suffering, not infertility, not job loss, nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is because Jesus alone is God and there is no other. What God says to you this morning is that although you don't have control in your life, that's okay. Because you belong to the one who is in control and will always be in control. He invites you this morning to turn to Him and be rescued to rest in Him, and to give yourself to Him. Let me pray for us that we would do that. Father, we thank You that You were aware of our frame, of our own weakness, our own sin, and You're aware of the ways in which we are sinned against. We thank You, Lord, that You show Yourself to be trustworthy one in whom we can stake our very lives, and one who is working all things together for good. Father, help us to believe that this morning and to rest in it for your glory and for our good. Amen.